Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, when you come across a book with the title Wrath, America Enraged, you get very curious about what's in it, what's it about, and uh, what, what's the cause of the wrath. And so very quickly, I saw if we couldn't get the author on the show. Uh, Peter Wood is the author, president of the National Association of Scholars. And uh, in addition to wrath, he also wrote recently 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project, which we've talked a lot about on, on this show. Um, he's a former professor of anthropology, uh, which is a profession, I think, that would come in very handy in modern America. And he was a college provost, and uh, he also has written several other books about American culture, including diversity, uh, invention of a concept, and a bee in the mouth, angry in America now. Peter, delighted to have you with us, with me. Thank you for having me. So, uh, provocative title. What, what, uh, what, 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 what inclined you to write this book? Well, I think the main thing was the 2020 election and its aftermath, including the Capitol Hill riot on January 6th. Uh, as you mentioned, I had written a book some years ago uh, about anger in America, uh, Be in the Mouth, and that book to some extent was a uh, forecast that if we didn't do something to get control of the excess of uh, vituperation and anger and acting out in American life, our politics was going to be uh, badly influenced by it. So as with most such uh, prophecies, nobody really paid much attention to it. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe this is the time to revisit the issue. Uh, the, the first book published in uh, 2006 combined a analysis of how we had gotten to where we were with a, a plea, I guess, uh, that this isn't a particularly good way to lead our lives. I would rather see a kind of temperateness in our public expression and in our personal relations to be um, more prevailing. But by the time we got to the 2020 election and its aftermath, uh, I too had been infected to some degree by this new anger, as I call it, um, in that I, I think that some of the response from uh, the deplorable class, as Hillary called them, uh, was justified, that the anger at, at the mischief that took place in uh, 2020 and the recategorization after the fact of the uh, riot on Capitol Hill as an insurrection uh, struck me as a deliberate effort to marginalize dissent in this country. So you, that's you, where the book came from. You, you framed it as, as, as a binary, which I, I agree. You talk about the left and the right. I don't know if those are the right words to describe the division, but you, you believe that, that, that anger has been mounting on both sides. 
Yes. And that uh, you chose the word wrath because that's the most extreme form. And you, you also argue that it's gotten worse in the last three or four decades. What's, uh, what, what's the source of your thinking there? Well, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm an anthropologist. And what I've been really doing with this subject is uh, a combination of anthropology and history. Uh, there, by the testament of uh, plenty of people, but easily documented, was a strong ethic in America up until the years after World War II that counseled people to engage in emotional self-control, that, that ability to get angry, but maybe learn how to turn it off or turn it down or channel it in a productive direction. And that goes way, way back. Uh, George Washington, for example, was known to be a man of really volatile temper. He could let loose, but he also was well known in his time as someone who practiced this steely self-control. So our image these days of Washington is this sort of stiffly dignified, uh, almost mannequin-like person was not how his contemporaries saw him. They saw him as a man who uh, was ready to fly off the handle at a moment's notice, but who had somehow disciplined himself not to do it. And he had that self-command, which gave him the ability to command others. Uh, anger is nothing new in human nature. It's been around you know, forever. It's part of not only our species, but other species. You can rile up a dog or a cat easily enough. Um, the question is not whether we weren't angry before, but how we channeled it, what kind of cultural frame did we put around it? And uh, that began to change, as I said, after World War II. The, the, uh, the, the hero type of uh, a Gary Cooper who could uh, maintain his cool under extreme pressure gave way to, uh, oh, think of Allen Ginsberg, his famous poem was Howl, and this... Uh, do, do I have to think of Allen Ginsberg? I guess um, I do. <laughs> for a moment. Talk, talk oh. about performative art. Yeah, he, he was quite a character. But, uh, there there oh. are sort of cultural benchmarks you can point to. Uh, the, a book that everybody in my age was reading growing up was Catcher in the Rye, Salinger's sure. book. Um, a teenage boy, Holden Caulfield, uh, gets kicked out of prep school and wanders around New York for a couple of days. Uh, denouncing just about everybody he meets as phony. Uh, it turns out in the last chapter of the book, we learn that Caulfield is uh, talking to his, uh, his shrink, and uh, this whole book has been his confession. Well, he's an angry young man, but what we get out of it is uh, two things that were emerging at that time. One was this uh, the discovery of psychoanalysis, which is teaching you that Repressing your anger is going to come back as neurosis. So it's just not mentally healthy to uh, bottle up your anger the way many generations of Americans have been taught to do. Yeah, and that, and that, is, and that it's not your fault, it's your mother's. <laughs> and, and the other well, that, you know, that's a theme I wanted to ask you about. You raised Catcher in the Rye. Uh, you know, a friend of ours, Diana West, has written a book, uh, Death of the Grown-Up. Hmm. And... It seems to me like there's a path here where with Catcher in the Rye and then the 60s generation, the baby boom, 
you know, do your own thing, express yourself, don't trust anyone over 30. The grown-ups were shoved aside, and the grown-ups were the, the, the forbearing ones, the ones that uh, uh, restrained their anger and their emotions. And uh, in return, we got an anything go, uh, and whatever emotion you have, uh, let it loose. Is that is that roughly the way, uh, the way you that's, see that's it? That's roughly where I'm going with it. I mean, <laughs> I, I think Wes has it right. Uh, I do think that the emotional patterns people get are, are really established pretty early on in childhood, parents teach children how to behave and uh, or not to behave. And what happened with the, uh, the infusion of anger as this liberating force, in, at least for the elites in the early 1950s, it took a couple of generations for that to become normal for uh, parents to tell their children, uh, it's okay, just let it all out. And so the adults just didn't disappear all at once. It, didn't, it took more than a, a couple uh, yippie-style riots in the 1960s to erase this. But if you repeat the pattern generation after generation, you eventually get to the point where emotional expressiveness triumphs over everything. Now, when we say emotional expressiveness, or expressiveness, well, I say it anyway, and you could think, okay, it's great. We can express our, our love for one another more freely. Um, well, maybe, but the emotion that is really licensed to come flying out is anger. Uh, that's the one that was being really restrained before. And now it takes on sort of social utility. The, the protest movements starting in the 50s again found that uh, Anger was a way to empower yourself and others. You can get them excited and get a, a crowd moving. So anger begins to be not something just that people do towards each other, but can be uh, framed as a way of pursuing social justice. Well, well, it, well isn't there a double standard, though? I mean, we saw it uh, two summers ago with the, uh, the riots um, after... Uh, the murder of, uh, or not, well, whatever it was called, the murder of George Floyd, or, and I prefer to say his death in police custody. I think death, and that's where I am on it. I'm, I'm, I don't want to fall into the media word, but the the left is celebrating those riots as an expression of of, of justified rage against the system. And so we witness burning after burning after burning of city after city after city. And that was okay. That was just uh, an expression of justified, uh, justified emotion. And yet, you take a look at what happened with how the January sixth uh, march on the Capitol Hill was characterized as a, as an insurrection, as a as you know, what are they saying? It's the worst thing since the Civil War. I mean, the way they've characterized that is way out of way out of tune with what actually happened there. Double standard operating. How do you see that playing out? I mean, at what point do the people on the right say, look, um, we get to do the same thing? Well, I hope people on the right decide not to do the same thing. But the unraveling of this, I think, is uh, something that really starts to take form in the uh, early days of George W. Bush administration. That's when uh, the angry left finds its voice in social media 
and we begin to get this uh, cycle of rage all the time. Um, now, that's long enough ago that probably a lot of people listening to us talk don't have a very vivid memory of it, but I've been saturated in this stuff now for a while. Um, there was a, uh, a moment when uh, Jonathan Chait, a well-known political pundit, uh, wrote in the pages of the New Republic, a formerly very respectable kind of political publication, began an article, uh, I hate George W. Bush. There, I said it. And he gets a tremendous relief that he can rip off the mask and express his uh, vitriolic hatred of, of the president. Well, uh, that's somebody who's sort of on the highbrow end of the spectrum discovering the liberating force of expressive anger. Um, the anger that I think becomes a, a political force for the left, if we're going to be binary about it, is of this uh, a lifestyle of almost constant rage, uh, renewed maybe every morning by going to the internet and seeing what your fellows on the daily costs or something are griping about that day. Um, so a lifestyle comes into it. It's not simply that uh, I'm enraged that uh, the Supreme Court handed the presidency to Bush and not to Gore. Uh, rather, it's I can be irritated all the time, and that becomes kind of part of my character. Now, I set that up as a, a contrast to the anger on the right, because while people on the right are equally human and can get peeved about things, they seldom turned it into a lifestyle. It was not uh, the ruling passion of people's lives. Conservatives tend to see politics as just one part of life, and they've got other things going on, their family, their jobs, their church, their clubs, uh, that sort of thing. And it made it difficult for conservatives to take entirely seriously that the other side was just simmering with rage all the time. Well, we saw that change with the uh, uh, 2016 election in which uh, the left responded to uh, Trump's uh, victory there with this outpouring of uh, quite astonishing uh, expressive rage. There was the, uh, I think, fairly called riot on Inauguration Day with the, the women coming to town and wearing their uh, uh, pussy hats or whatever they were called. Uh, but there was also setting fire to police vehicles and a, a general mayhem that accompanied that. The rage that started then was fueled by the accusations that Trump had colluded with uh, Vladimir Putin and we were on to this four years of continuous uh, hectoring uh, backed by the FBI and other law enforcement authorities that made people on the right feel that their election was being delegitimized by the mainstream press right in front of them. So a sense- Well, it, 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 it was, <laughs> it certainly was. Uh, their refusal to accept Trump as president was absolute. Uh, this, you're what, you're, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm talking with Peter Wood, brilliant scholar about his book, Wrath, and about how, uh, how anger seems to have consumed America on, on both sides of, of the argument. One of the points you make in the book, 
Peter, is the role that media has played in this and that I think the progression that you're talking about over decades is that the media went from the business of trying to create informed citizens, and I think your term, and maybe you're quoting somebody else, is it's become in the, in the business of creating enraged citizens, and that uh, and anger sells. And anger sells on, on cable, it sells in the print newspaper, it sells online, and it, it seems like they've that, 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 that's been captured as a very effective way to build ratings and, uh, and ad dollars. Well, I think anger is, for one thing, it's entertaining. Uh, it's a spectacle. When you see other people angry, you tend to pay attention to it. Um, but it's uh, also clearly uh, a tool that gets people uh, up out of their seats and willing to do something, whether it's a riot in Kenosha or uh, maybe uh, play some mischievous role in an election that that motivating factor combines with the entertaining factor that uh, puts the the press in this situation of okay why not anger why not just play this all the time a uh, a figure like walter cronkite back in the day um, not somebody who i have the highest regard for but his his affect the emotional uh uh, front that he put on the way he was uh, subtly bringing his politics into CBS News was always uh, the word was avuncular. He was everybody's uncle, and uh, that was not a picture of a, uh, an uncle who was uh, off on a tirade. He was kind of gentle and unassuming. Um, I, it's hard to think of a figure who has uh, a large access to the media now who represents anything like that maybe it's you i'm, I'm working on it <laughs> i'll have to get a pipe <laughs> no, but I, it is it is you know there's one of the purposes of the show to talk about issues in a way that we can do it without ad hominem attacks on on the other side and and you know jonathan shate opening with uh, I can say it, I hate George Bush, is really, he's, he's reduced himself to uh, really a child. Well, there is something childish about anger. In fact, uh, you know, if I can indulge my interest in history on this. We Please. Have, we have the word tantrum, um, which is actually a pretty recent word. It uh, seems to have come out of uh, uh, British society at the end of the 18th century. It was very quickly adopted by Americans. Um, why? It was a, a word that could be used to stigmatize childish rage. And it was clearly a, a word used uh, uh, for, I guess we social scientists would say social control. It's telling you that that shape kind of behavior is childish and not to be indulged. Uh, so even if you're uh, just overwhelmingly angry, it's not the place to go out in the public square and display it. Um, in the past, people who did were uh, almost immediately marginalized. Um, you know, John Brown uh, of the Harper's Ferry raid was a very angry man by all accounts, but not respected for it. Um, the, uh, the idea that uh, you give in to your maybe justified hatred of the system of uh, 
chattel slavery in the country by going out and slaughtering people was just not uh, how adults were meant to uh, conduct themselves. So um, I think that this dissent, you know, where are the adults in the room? Are we marginalized adulthood? Well, yeah, we have to a fairly large degree. I see conservatives as fighting back against that. Um, when uh, parents show up at school board meetings these days, some of them behave in a childish way. They, they rant or they scream, but most of them are there with kind of good talking points. They've done their homework. They know what's going on in the schools and they want to challenge the members of their school board about what they're doing. Um, the uh, characterization of uh, these parents, by, and by no means are they all conservative, they're, they're just parents, uh, but characterizing them as uh, Merritt Garland did as uh, domestic terrorists, whereas many on the right are doing this just as out of control people, is the sort of thing that really drives people like me to distraction. And me. Uh you write something pretty interesting. You write, the, this wrath is pr further prodded by a progressive elite that seems to take sadistic delight in devising new ways to torment Amer ordinary Americans. And then, you know, we run down the list, the anti-Americanism, the 1619 projects, critical race theory, abolishing our national border, uh, flooding the country with illegals and, and really with abandon. Uh, defund the police, uh, climate change, we should shut down the economy because of uh, a one degree rise in, in the earth's temperature, driving up gas prices along with that. Uh, and a lot of us think that, the, that the Wuhan virus <clears throat> was manipulated, uh, whether the Chinese let it out on purpose or whether they just took advantage of it, the, the Chinese did. And then I think you see the American left uh, moving very quickly to change the way our elections are held. And, uh, you know, now we find ourselves with bills in Congress that want to enshrine the kind of voting abuses that took place in, in 2020 and make it make it part of permanent law. Uh, I, you know, it, it seems designed to, to, to goad us into the wrath that uh, we're talking about here. I, and I, I, for one, wonder how this ends, I, I fear it. I fear it ends badly, but I don't know what badly looks like. Right. Well, I do think that uh, at least some on the left are, are deliberately goading the right. Uh, actually, I will go a little bit further than that. I think the FBI's uh, uh, operation in Michigan, where they uh, essentially orchestrated a kidnapping plot against the governor there. Uh, was the template for what the FBI was doing uh, on January 6th. I only saw the headlines. The, the, the FBI really was involved in, in, in kidnapping, the plot to kidnap the Michigan governor? Yes. Well, the FBI in the form of uh, uh, about half of the participants in the plot were paid informants of the FBI, where they were FBI agents or just people who had been groomed by the FBI, but um, the, uh, the plot there was clearly one that did not uh, occur spontaneously among the plotters. They were uh, 
coached into doing it. And when they finally committed to uh, a plan that they hadn't devised, uh, they were arrested for uh, a conspiracy. Well, you know, the more fools they to have been uh, caught in such a uh, nefarious web, but what a disgrace that our most important law enforcement agency in the country would engage in that sort of thing. Uh, we would call it in most circumstances entrapment. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know if this actually meets the definition of entrapment, but I would expect that the attorneys for those who have been arrested are going to mount a defense along those lines, unless they've uh, been further tempted into plea bargaining out so that they can avoid long jail terms. Uh, but in any case, uh, it's, uh, I suppose, unproven at this point, but it seems very likely, given the evidence that has come out, that the uh, leadership of the Proud Boys and some of these other uh, groups that allegedly were fomenting a riot on Capitol Hill were, in fact, people colluding with the FBI. Uh, why is the FBI doing this? I think their theory of it goes something like this. There's bad people out there who mean to do terrible things if we don't catch them beforehand, but they're very hard to catch while they're uh, fomenting their own plots. So let's infiltrate them and give them a plot and we can prevent their from doing something worse by tempting them to do something now. Well, that's a one way of reading what happened on January 6th. Maybe it's too conspiratorial, I don't know. But you know the facts will like, presumably eventually come out. But even if there was no FBI involvement, the, the recategorization of the whole thing as an insurrection doesn't meet a kind of common sense test. If people were planning to uh, overthrow the government, surely they would have shown up with some deadly weapons in hand and some tactics beyond asking the security guards to take down the barriers. Uh, there was something about it that never really added up. Um, and uh, thus, uh, well, I, I guess I'm, I'm circling back to this idea of why is the right on the point of wrath? Well, in my sort of offhand uh, construction of this, uh, wrath isn't just more intense anger. It's the place that anger goes to when its uh, legitimate outlets have been uh, boarded up or chained shut. Uh, so when, when Americans find that the courts aren't interested in their uh, grievances, that the law enforcement authorities stand down, that our elected leaders uh, say, uh, you're all in the wrong, and where the press incessantly repeats the idea that uh, election mischief was uh, the big lie or uh, that anybody who doubts the, uh, well, the insurrection narrative is disloyal, then, then you have wrath. Yeah. Uh, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here talking with Peter Wood, and we're talking about how wrath is playing up. And you point out in the book, and I, I agree that if you look at the way these institutions have responded to ordinary Americans and not heard their, heard their legitimate uh, concerns, they feel betrayed. They feel betrayed by all the, the courts, the police, the, uh, the politicians, the 
the bureaucrats, all the people that normally you think you could go to and get a fair hearing in the past, I don't think people feel like um, we're able to get a fair hearing anymore. I, I think we don't feel like we can get a fair hearing and we also have a, a, a distrust deeper than any before of the authorities who are telling us what to do. Uh, if the FBI comes knocking at my door, I've, over the years I've had conversations with FBI agents involved in various investigations. I always treated them with the utmost respect. I think these days, well, maybe I just don't want to have that conversation. I don't right. trust them. Um, right. But there's that uh, distrust that applies to some other things. You've mentioned a few of them. Uh, the, the COVID mandates, the way in which the whole epidemic was framed for us and uh, yeah. became an excuse for the federal and state governments to assume enormous powers that they never had in the past. Uh, all justified in the name of safety and all presented initially as these are just temporary emergency steps that we've seen the emergency sort of diffuse out into being a permanent condition. Um, there's the climate change stuff, uh, a topic I've been interested in for decades. Uh, I remember when the great climate change worry was that we were going to freeze to death in a new ice age. Um, then within the space of about two years, it pivoted. No, we're going to bake to death in a uh, Sahara of some sort. Um, the uh, beginning of that narrative was a UN report in 1987. Uh, the former prime minister of Norway led a commission and came up with the idea of sustainability. Well, that word is now almost omnipresent in our lives, and it's very connected with the global warming climate change narrative. Sustainability was uh, in its birth, a kind of access road to socialism. It was saying, let's take our resources of the world and distribute them equitably and with a mind that we shouldn't use up anything now that might be of use to future generations. And that definition goes into the thinking that if the earth heats up a little bit uh, or a lot, we are somehow compromising uh, the ability of future generations to enjoy the good things we've had. Well, that, that sounds like such a, an appeal to good sense. Who could be against it? But then you find that uh, the whole global warming narrative segue so easily into, well, the real problem is capitalism. And if we can just rid ourselves of the profit motive and go to some sort of benign collective economy that is completely global, uh, we'll avoid this great well, catastrophe coming down. Sounds like we're, we're in, in uh, you know, my view is the climate change is a, is a, is a ruse, is a, uh, is a guise, uh, uh, disguising a, uh, not very well disguising a, an economic and, and power and, and social agenda. And if you look at the hardcore climate people, they're degrowth people who think the world economy should be shrinking. And of course, with the world economy growing in the last 250 years, we brought billions of people out of poverty, out of starvation into uh, pretty good lives. And they want to turn the clock back on that. And exactly. I think uh, there's a professor at Middlebury College named Bill McKibben, who's one of the leaders of all this. 
McKibben yeah. is on record as saying that the human population of Earth should be reduced by nine tenths. Um, that's, nine tenths, ninety percent. Ninety percent, because then we would have a population that could easily survive by basically subsistence farming and hunting and gathering. We'd no longer need a fuel. On, you know. I, I, I need to share something with him that you know the populations of the Earth is slow. The growth is slowing dramatically. The, China's fallen below replacement rate. Japan's long been below that. Even Africa is beginning to see the birth rate decline. Uh, Western Europe, certainly. So we're, they're going to get what they want uh, with fewer people uh, without having to put us through all this hell. Well, in any case. Hey, one thing I wanted, I wanted to ask you about, you're, you're, you're involved with a very, in fact, you lead a very interesting group. Uh, called the National Association of Scholars, and I hadn't heard about it before I, I came across your book. And evidently, there are a lot of like-minded people on or about campuses that uh, that, that share our point of view. And uh, and you've gathered together, I, I think, probably to to research and reinforce your uh, your thinking. Well, we number about uh, four thousand. That's actual members of the organization. Our mailing lists, all told, are bringing the sort of followership, I would say, closer to 20,000. Uh, been around since uh, the early 1980s and were formally incorporated in 1987. So uh, this organization, I guess, could be called the, uh, the remnant of those who, who still believe that uh, a classical liberal arts education is a good idea that the front and center in higher education and in all education should be things like the pursuit of truth and uh, intellectual freedom. Uh, we add to that the uh, cultivation of good citizenship, virtuous citizenship. Uh, not ideas that would have been terribly controversial not so long ago. Uh, these days, those things, pursuit of truth, virtuous citizenship, intellectual freedom, add up to fascism. That's uh, yeah. So anybody who is willing to join an organization like mine uh, is at some risk, especially if you're pursuing an active career uh, in higher education of uh, being spotted out as the enemy. Uh, we don't make our membership list public for that reason. Uh, but uh, we try to be say, truly faithful to the mission. Um, although I can talk to you and others in a fashion that suggests that uh, I'm pretty partisan. Uh, and that's true. I, I see myself as a conservative and I'm uh, uh, trying to promote an agenda that I think makes sense to the common man in America. Uh, the organization itself approaches these things with real resolve to uh, present a actual neutral account of what's actually happening. So uh, we do in-depth research reports. Uh, some of them are hundreds of pages long. We take up subjects like the sustainability movement or China's Confucius Institutes or uh, administrative bloat on campus. We're taking a look at the natural sciences and how they've been infected by a, a, a kind of crisis of irreproducible results. 
Um, so we try to cover the whole waterfront in higher education. Lately, we've been moving into some areas of K-12 education with the 1619 project and stuff like that. But I want to do it in a non-polemical way. And uh, the purpose of this is that we give people who are uh, undecided, as well as people who may already have strong opinions, a genuine knowledge basis to deal with the issues at hand. I think that's the role that we can play in uh, the political economy of America. We're providing something that doesn't otherwise exist. Well, you call yourself partisan. I guess I call myself partisan. But coming back to this idea of, uh, of the divide, uh, you know, there's a real bifurcation. It's, it's a binary. I think you called it binary distinctions on on the one hand, you got the left who are secular, and they've been, I guess, since the French Revolution, and they're globalists, they're elitist, they're statist, environmentalist, uh, strongly attached to victim group policies. Um, and on the, our our side, we you know we believe in faith, and uh, we believe in the nation, and borders, and family, and and the integrity of local communities, uh, and we don't agree. I mean, there's a fundamental division. And it, it's all, we no longer really can agree on facts. I mean, it, it, you know, global warming, climate change is a good example. You know, you've got we've got lots of people, very smart people on our side, that agree that the the situation is not nearly dire and certainly doesn't require the draconian measures they're trying to bring bring about. And then the, the virus, the, the the Wuhan virus, uh, lots of lots of information now about how lethal it really is and to whom and what the proper measures are to deal with it, and yet you can't get people to agree on even those basic facts. There are organizations and, and individuals who uh, preach the message of let's go back and find the middle. Uh, <coughs> a group called Braver Angels, for example, that tries to bring together left and right to have productive conversations. Um, uh, I don't fault them for trying, but I am just not capable of believing that you could get a, a so-called climate denier and a, a, a climate fanatic in the room together and find much of a productive conversation. They're always, they're always very short conversations and very quickly grow personal and heated and filled with wrath. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just a quick question? aside, my, uh, I, I originally started this show uh, um, uh, a few years ago, and I had the title was Common Ground. And I was seeking the same thing, and then after a few stabs at it, I really couldn't find much common ground. So I really focused on what I thought were, were, were true things and wanted the show to be about true things and, and, and highlight those. But I think people trying to find the middle now, um, that, that's a tough, tough task. Um, I spent yesterday working on a uh, book review of a book by a man named Ivan Osnos. He's a uh, writer for the New Yorker magazine, and he wrote uh, Joe Biden's campaign biography. But the book that I was reviewing is a new one titled uh, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. Uh, so uh, what it is is the, the mirror opposite of my book, Raph, America enraged. Uh, 
Osnos takes his timeline from uh, uh, 9-11 to January 6th. So he, he and I agree on one thing, that America has become a very angry place. But Osnos's view of it is that, well, it's just these irrational people on the right who were made fearful by the attack on 9-11. Their world started falling apart and they didn't know what to do. And that made them pray to these demagogues uh, like Sarah Palin and the uh, people who led the, uh, uh, well, I, he takes it up to Trump and beyond, but we're, we're in this land where uh, if only we can get beyond those terrible people who have been uh, twisting the fears of ordinary folk, the ordinary folk will come over and we will once again have a country where we can trust that democracy will do its thing. Democracy, in his view, being essentially the, uh, the folk will settle down and listen to what their betters tell them they should do. Uh, so, uh, wild Demo land. Democracy worked very well in the Soviet Union with one party. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, the worldview of uh, Mr. Osnos and mine. Uh, so they can exist in the same room because they're in the same room right now. But uh, I, I'm astonished that when I put the books on top of each other, they don't burst into flames. <laughs> uh, this is the Walton Show. I'm here with Peter Wood, and we're talking about uh, the divisions in America. And we've got a few minutes left. And uh, Peter, speculate. I, I, I'm, I feel this tremendous anger. Uh, in a sense of betrayal that our institutions have, have gone to the dark side, yet I very much do not want to provoke something that we would all regret. And so in your group, in your book, in your writings, have you, have you thought about some lines of action that, that might lead us out of this, uh, this terrible place? Well, um, I have hopes more than I have lines of action, but I do see that uh, the spontaneous uh, creation of a movement of uh, parents to go to school board meetings and push back against uh, the 1619 project and it's the diversity <coughs> inclusion stuff and critical race theory is a hugely positive development those are not people who are picking up the, their ar-15s and trying to enforce their point of view with bullets uh, the uh, decision of airline pilots and air traffic controllers to sit at home, stick out rather than accept the uh, vaccine mandates, similar things that happened here in New York with police, firefighters, and some teachers point to me, point me to uh, a spirit of civil disobedience that is not violent. It's just this willingness at some point to say no, no more, we're not going to get away with it. Uh, we have the, the Durham investigation coming along at a glacial pace, but uh, that appears to be uh, doing its work slowly to rid the country of the idea that uh, uh, the press played a very wholesome role or the law enforcement authorities were to be trusted when they went after Trump for four years. Uh, so I take it that those are avenues that should be encouraged at every every moment. There, there are things that can be done. 
uh, short of becoming violent. Uh, the left wants conservatives, the right, the, the deplorables, or whatever we call them, to uh, uh, act out, to be the first ones to throw a punch or to th throw a punch back after one's been thrown at them. The, the uh, trial in Kenosha right now is a good example of that. Uh, anybody who does resist violently is going to be held up nationally as the image of who conservatives really are. They are they're just being restrained at the moment by superior force. But uh, we need, we need say, the, the Bidenistas uh, even more power to keep those people down because they're dangerous. Well, I want to be dangerous in the sense that we want to be able to challenge this new authoritarianism that has uh, taken away the consent of the governed and uh, undermined uh, many crucial aspects of our republic. You're not going to get there by simply playing by their rules, but the way you break the rules has to be shrewd and, and it has to be nonviolent. It has to figure out where the pressure points are. And that's, that's the best I can do. Well, I, I, I agree. Uh, you know, I've been involved in thinking about this for not as long as you have, but it, it, I've learned about this communist from Italy, the Granchi, that talked about the need to take over the cultural institutions, and he called it, we need to go in a long march through the institutions. And uh, 100 years on, he wrote in the 20s, uh, they've succeeded. And if I have a hope, it's the hope that what's going on in the schools now might be the thin end of the wedge that we can begin to take some things back because the, you know, it seems like every time you and I and other people of our mind, like-minded talk about this, we talk about, you know, if we could just get education, if we could get K-12 education, we could do a lot of good and begin to change a lot of other things. And of course, the barriers to getting in there, not just school boards, but it's teachers unions, curriculum developers, consultants, the whole education establishment, which is aligned against us. But with the lockdown, they may have made a mistake because all of a sudden the mothers and parents started seeing what their kids are being taught. And for the first time, they're saying, no, we don't want that. They're our schools, they're not your schools. And if we, I think if we can push that through through the next election and make that a much, much more pronounced movement about not taking back just schools, but taking back our culture, um, that might seem to be a peaceful way to bring it about. Well, the term culture war to me is a very real matter. I, I think we need to be contesting things in schools, first of all, but it belongs in how we handle the arts and yeah. literature and music. Whatever is out there right now is essentially an arm of propaganda for this uh, progressive left worldview. Not necessarily in every case it's political view, but the culture that pervades is what tells people how to lead their lives, what's permissible, what, what is the, the good way to be. And if the good way to be is angry all the time, we're not in, in a good place. That's not what America is all about. So um, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the results of uh, the election earlier this month, but I'm also uh, thinking that a head of steam has been worked up that 
should, if things go well, play out well in the midterm elections next year, and we'll, we'll get somewhere with this. Nonetheless, we're still left with the Biden presidency and all that entails. Well, yeah, I don't even want to think about the full term. Peter Wood, thank you. Uh, author of a great book, Wrath, uh, America Enraged. I highly recommend uh, you pick it up. It's very interesting reading, really uh, sort of tells you how to got, got, got to where we are today. And Peter, I look forward to talking with you again sometime in a not too distant future about uh, maybe some things that have developed this year that are, that are gonna move the country back in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining. Okay, this is Bill Walton Show. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, uh, uh, all the audio podcast platforms, and also Rumble and, 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 uh, and YouTube. Occasionally, YouTube uh, takes exception to our content, but I think this time it's been unexceptional, and uh, you can find us on YouTube quite soon. Thank you. Peter, thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.